Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to a special holiday edition of CNN Tonight. The Republican infighting is taking a nasty turn. Ron DeSantis is attacking Donald Trump with a campaign video that slams Trump for once supporting LGBTQ rights. Like this moment in 2016, weeks after the Pulse nightclub massacre. I will do everything in my power to protect our LGBTQ citizens. Our panel is going to explain what this ad says about Ron DeSantis and what he really believes. Plus, Michael Imperioli, star of The Sopranos and White Lotus, has a new rule for who can watch his hit TV shows and movies. He says the Supreme Court has given him the right to ban bigots. And two people shot to death, 28 injured in a mass shooting at a block party in Baltimore on Sunday. We wanted to hear from gun owners and strong Second Amendment advocates about what reforms they can live with to stop mass shootings. Hear what they say in tonight's Pulse of the People. My guns are not a factor. My point being that my rights should not be taken away because a, a mental health gun issue in somebody else's house, in somebody else's community, in, in Chicago, in New York City. Okay, but let's begin with this bizarre campaign video from Ron DeSantis advertising the fact that he does not support the rights of LGBTQ people. Here with me tonight, we have Molly Jongfast, Vanity Fair columnist, Jay Michelson, rabbi and Rolling Stone columnist, Eva McKend, CNN national politics reporter, and Jason Osborne, communications strategist for Ben Carson's 2016 presidential campaign. Great to see all of you. Jason, let me start with you. Let's just play a little bit more of this ad from DeSantis that seems to proudly highlight the fact that he has draconian policies. just produced some of the harshest, most draconian laws that literally threaten trans existence. Congratulations, Ron DeSantis. Mission accomplished. You win. Jason, as a strategist yourself in politics on a presidential campaign, if he's trying to add voters, how is this additive, this ad? Well, I think first off, this wasn't a campaign ad, so to speak. I mean, it was, a, I think, personally, a dumb decision to retweet it out by a campaign staffer. So there is that aspect of it. But I think what he's trying to do, or I, well, I, I can't even say what he's trying to do. But generally, I think that the idea is that DeSantis is trying to show voters that, wait a minute, I'm further to the right than Donald Trump. And if Donald Trump is going to sit here and campaign and say that he's the, the consensus candidate, then you know, you're going to have to fight Ron DeSantis to get that primary vote. Now, what he does after that, I don't know. And I I think, quite frankly, the underlying message of that DeSantis is trying to get, you know, parental rights and their kids in schools is going to be lost on this kind of ad. And I certainly hope that they change their tactics moving forward. Molly, he's basically telling gay voters, I I do not want your vote. It's a natural progression of the don't say gay laws. Remember, don't say gay laws were these uh, Florida education laws started by Ron DeSantis. They first went to third grade. They said, oh, it's just going to go to third grade. Then they went to high school. And now he's coming after gay people. I mean, this is what happens. This is always what happens. They go after speech 
and then they go after the people themselves. And I mean, I think strategically DeSantis is doing it because he wants to run to the right of Trump, but you're seeing they're pushing each other further and further right. Jay? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I, I love that this ad is to some like gay techno club <laughs> anthem. I don't know if I'll be hearing it, you know, July 4th in the Pines tomorrow, but that's, you know, an interesting choice. But bring it on, Ron. It's great when the biggest say the quiet part out loud. You know, we are coming up on July 4th. I am a patriot. I believe in American values. And I think most Americans do not support this kind of outrageous targeting. Even if they might agree on, you know, on some of the things about parental rights or some like some of those issues, this message that just says, you know, I'm the biggest bigot in the room is not going to resonate with mainstream voters. So as a progressive, I say bring it on. Even one of the things that's been pointed out is that one of the, the quote that he uses from Trump is right after the Pulse nightclub massacre. I mean, again, I know that they just retweeted it, but still, I mean, how tone deaf can you be in Florida when that was, I think, 49 people were mowed down? Here's what two of his opponents, Republicans, uh, had to say about this. Uh, let me play Chris Christie and Will Hurd. I'm not comfortable with it, and I'm not comfortable with the way both Governor DeSantis and Donald Trump are, are moving our debate in this country. I wish they would focus and, and, and focus their attacks on war criminals like Vladimir Putin, not my friends in the LGBTQ community. Eva, what is the DeSantis campaign saying about this? Well, Allison, all indications are they are proud of this and really sort of taking a victory lap here. A spokesperson for the governor tweeting out that uh, taking issue with the concept of Pride Month altogether, saying that it is pandering, there isn't a similar uh, sort of celebration for straight people, uh, and calling identity politics toxic. So this is right on brand for Governor DeSantis and his team. Listen, they are trying to speak to a certain segment of the electorate. When I was at the Faith and Freedom Forum in D.C. not long ago, speaking to Christian evangelical voters, these are the voters that Republicans need to capture in the early state of Iowa. Uh, they told me that their number one concern was uh, their concern about transgender Americans, how gender identity is taught in schools. And I, I would you know, push back and say, really, out of all of the, the issues that we're confronting in this country, whether it be abortion or the economy, they, they said, no, it, it's transgender issues, it's gender issues. And so Governor DeSantis is speaking directly to those anxieties. And he is probably relishing that uh, the likes of Secretary Boo Buttigieg, Will Hurd, and Chris Christie are going after him because those are people that uh, Republicans, uh, base Republicans, would characterize as the elites. Mm. And so he is uh, leaning into this. So, so, Jason, will that work, in other words, for the primary? Well, I think the bottom line is the fact that people are talking about it, right? And for, for several months now, everybody has been focused on Trump and his, his cases and his trials and his statements. And then now we're actually talking about Ron DeSantis, and he's developing a list of enemies that don't like him for these statements. And so I think that's going to maybe drive some more enthusiasm for his campaign. Is it right? I don't think so. But that's sadly the fact of the matter is, you know, to the previous uh, commentator that in Iowa, that's what they're looking at. In New Hampshire, that's what they're looking at. In South Carolina and Nevada. Right. So you win the primary and then you just say, just kidding. 
Well, if he's compiling an enemies list, he can count this gay rabbi as one of his friends, because I love it when they get way ahead of their skis and think that middle America agrees with them, which so, they don't. So you don't think it will, this is a winning strategy in Iowa? No, I mean, I don't know about Iowa, but I'm focused on the general, right? right. And I'm focused on, on the people who are actually going to decide the next president of this country. And these are not American values. So when someone gets so over their skis that they think the extreme 10% of their base represents the consensus of America, that's good news for someone on my side. Of the spectrum. Except it's dangerous for, you know, sure. children who are gay or, you course, know, te- yeah. young teenagers who see this and think, you know, should I hate myself? I mean, it, it you know, it, it and it causes more, you know, just like when Trump would attack a certain group, then there would be violence towards that group. I mean, this is what happens. You know, there are unintended consequences that reverberate in ways that none of us can even realize. And Eva, one of the strange ironies of this is that you have reporting, I mean, and we can all see that this is the most diverse group of Republican candidates ever. Now, we're not talking LGBTQ, but in terms of racially and ethnically. That we know of. Correct, that we know of. That's right. I mean, that we know of, yes. And so, Eva, um, w- tell us what you're, what they're saying about this. Yeah, so it is quite striking that about half the field is comprised of folks of color. But I think it's all the more striking because of the politics of the candidates. So Vivek Ramaswamy, for instance, uh, rejects to the characterization of person of color. He doesn't like that terminology. Um, He uh, told me that now that this dispels the mythology of the left, that the Republican is somehow a racist party, it would be truly a bizarre brand of racism. So I think it does make it more difficult for Democrats uh, to knock uh, some of the positions of Republicans. But Democrats I speak to say, hey, listen, do not give Republicans so much credit for this uh, diversifying field. Ultimately, that would be a disservice to voters who voters of color who have given a very specific message uh, when it comes to the policies that they support. And representation can only go so far. But I think it is something to note that this this field is so diverse. Yeah, Jason, I mean, you obviously worked with Ben Carson in 2016. Back then, there were four candidates of color in that 17-person Republican field. So, I mean, this is the way the country is going. Yeah, I mean, I think I'd like to say that the candidate I worked for was the last one that actually led Donald Trump in the field of Republicans, and we quickly lost that race. But I, I do think she's right. I mean, the, the, the problem that we have is that we do have such a diverse field, but none of their message is getting out. And none of, none of America is being able to hear what they have to say and how they're going to change America or what they're going to do for America if they're elected because of all the noise that Donald Trump is creating and, you know, now Ron DeSantis. And so I hope that in the coming months, we actually see what that diversity, you know, our, our candidates that are diverse out there talking about their alone life experiences and then their policies that they based off of those experiences. Well, I mean, we do that with some of our town halls on CNN and obviously in debates, et cetera. So I think that that is ahead of us. Thank you all very much for your thoughts on this coming up. You, of course, know Michael Imperioli for his memorable performances in The Sopranos and White Lotus. Do you actually think you have a chance with any of these women? Oh, don't be rude. I'm just saying, you're 80 years old. Well, now, he says the Supreme Court has given him the right to ban bigots from seeing his hit shows. That's next.
White Lotus star Michael Imperioli has a message about the Supreme Court ruling on LGBTQ rights. He wrote this on Instagram, quote, I've decided to forbid bigots and homophobes from watching The Sopranos, The White Lotus, Goodfellas, or any movie or TV show I've been in. Thank you, Supreme Court, for allowing me to discriminate and exclude those who I don't agree with and am opposed to. USA, USA. That was his response, of course, to the Supreme Court ruling in favor of that Christian web designer who refuses to create websites to celebrate same-sex weddings. Let's bring back Jay Michelson and Jason Osborne. Also joining us is Evan Osnos of The New Yorker and constitutional law professor Gloria Brown Marsh. She's the author of the book, She Took Justice, The Black Woman, Law, and Power. Great to have all of you. Uh, Professor, I do want to start with you. I assume the Imperioli rule is unenforceable in terms of who can watch his shows, but do you... Is his point valid in that it's sort of what Sotomayor was saying in terms of the balkanization of providers being able in the future to decide who they want to serve and who they don't want to serve? I think it, it is. It's directly on the point that Justice Sotomayor is saying that not just a protected class, um, women, people of color, immigrants, anyone could be prohibited from being served in restaurants or being allowed into particular movie theaters. And now we see that the other side of that is to say, well, anything I feel is, is, is uh, an area that I want to preclude other people. I should be able to do it based on the Supreme Court decision. It opens the floor. And it goes back to what is wrong with the Supreme Court decisions. It doesn't have the legal rationale that the American people can follow or businesses. And that's what the Supreme Court is supposed to do. It's supposed to give us a, 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 a rule to follow. And, and right now, as is pointed out, we can do about anything we want based on these very vague um, decisions by the court. Jay, you agree? So I want to respectfully disagree with the professor. Uh, so first, obviously, Michael Imperioli, thank you for your allyship. And, and yeah, I understood he was kind of making a lighthearted point. Um, that being said, uh, my general sense is we should not be giving our enemies, our opponents, more rights than they're already taking away. When we say, so this was, I think, a, a, so first of all, this opinion was wrong. This does provide a a pretext for discrimination because uh, you can go to this website, it was web designer and get a website and I cannot. That's discrimination. However, it is limited to cases where there really is a free speech interest. In this case, both parties agreed that creating a website, typing the words of a website is speech. And that means that it is not a sort of blanket license to discriminate such that, uh, you know, anybody can make that decision. And again, I'm not interested in getting the Supreme Court off the hook. People who know me know that's not my interest. Rather, I don't think we should be, as they they sometimes say, don't comply in advance. We should not be giving away more rights by saying they've taken away all of these rights when they have not. That's what I think is actually dangerous. Professor, do you want to respond to that? Yes. Um, when we say a First Amendment right to free speech and there are no limits on what that speech is, then it has to be interpreted by regular people who are business owners, regular people who are in the marketplace. And that's why I say the decision is so vague that someone then can uh, prohibit a, a person or group because of the vagueness of the decision. And then an action has to be brought for the Supreme Court or lower courts to give us some meat on these bones to better understand what these limitations are and how widespread we're supposed to interpret this decision. 
I certainly think that's true. I, I just would, I would say that this is not, there's not an analogy. If I put out a television show or something like that, I'm not being forced to say anything. I'm not being forced to say any words. And I agree, there could be a flood of litigation. And, and you and I both know there will be more of these lawsuits just continuing to kind of open the Overton window to exclude more and more of our lives. That being said, I just, I, I, I just am worried when we kind of do that in advance, because that does, exactly as you just said, that creates a social reality where businesses and others, you know, we saw after the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, you know, pizzerias were putting signs on their, on their window saying no gays allowed. That was not just justified by the Masterpiece Cake Shop decision as written. Mm-hmm. But just to your point, it's how it's interpreted that matters. Okay, thank you both for those perspectives. Let me bring in Evan right now, because Evan, so you just did this podcast that I listened to a portion of, and it was great, about the... Supreme Court and how political so many Americans believe that it has become. And in fact, you did it with um, Jane Mayer, a New Yorker reporter, who coined the term the dark money Supreme Court. What does that mean? Yeah, as as many I think people will remember, Jane Mayer really gave us this concept of the dark money force in politics, talking about electoral politics. She helped identify the ways in which, you know, large sums of money, often from donors that we didn't know the full uh, identities of, going to organizations whose names were unfamiliar to us, were having a big impact on politics. Used to talk about people like the Koch brothers, for instance. Well, these days, what you're seeing in the actions of the court is that it is increasingly shaped by similar kinds of dynamics. Take, for example, somebody like Leonard Leo, who is a very prominent conservative legal activist who oversees a big uh, a set of organizations, a sort of web of groups that have been involved in a number of cases. Take, for example, the affirmative action case. The litigant in that case, the plaintiff in that case, Students for Fair Admissions, in 2020, a third of their revenue reportedly came from an organization that Leo runs. And then many of the briefs that were submitted in support of that position came from organizations that he also supports. So we need to be thinking as much about money affecting the court as we used to think about money affecting electoral politics. Jason, it makes Americans uncomfortable to think that all of these machinations are going on with the Supreme Court, particularly the Leonard Leo thing, because it's as though he, he has an agenda and then he finds a plaintiff and a case to fit it, concocts it. Basically, and it went wrong, by the way, with the web designer case because they forgot to tell the plaintiff that they were concocting him into it. And so that one was sort of exposed. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think I've said this last week, and I think, you know, Jay and I tend to be on the same side of this aspect of it. Uh, Although I'll go a step further and say that I think we're making a problem where there isn't a problem to be had in the sense that this. Clearly, this website designer hadn't even gotten into wedding planning or wedding website services, and then all of a sudden concocts this case. Now, I I don't necessarily, you know, I I don't agree with how it came about, um, but I also have on the mind that, you know, we live in a capitalist society, and if you don't want to do business with somebody, then don't go and do business with them. And likewise, I don't think the services that this person is going to provide are going to be in line with what the services of a gay couple wanting them to do their website. But all that being said, in terms of the dark money aspect of it, I think let's not kid ourselves in thinking that this is just one sided. You know, the other side, you know, the the left has folks like George Soros that are out there funding campaigns in organizations that are out there not only doing kind of op research on judges or people that could be judges. The same is on the 
on the right side. So if we're going to change this, then we need to change it across the board for everybody. And let's not kid ourselves and just say it's the Republicans and Leonard Leo and these folks that are corrupting the system. Is that right, Evan? Well, I think one of the things that my colleagues Jane and and Susan Glasser and I tried to draw attention to is the fact that you've seen this really dramatic effect. Look, everybody has seen that Donald Trump was able to put three conservative justices on the court in the span of a single term, had a dispositive effect on the overall composition of the court. And you've seen the results now over the course of the last couple of years, particularly the Dobbs decision and now the affirmative action and the LGBT decisions. And you see this showing up in attitudes that people have about the court. Look, trust is declining rapidly. The Gallup poll last fall showed that it is now at the lowest level ever recorded, and it's gone down 20 points in two years. So it may be, in fact, that there is activity on both sides, but the effect is quite noticeable and quite distinct right now from these conservative dark money groups. Jay, do you want to quickly respond? Yeah, I, I don't think we're kidding ourselves. George Soros is, is pretty transparent, actually, about most of the, about all of the organizations that he funds. You know, I, I'm proud to say I kind of broke the Leonard Leo story seven years ago at the Daily Beast, and we have no idea to this day who has underwritten his massive campaign. We're talking about, now we're talking about money in the billions of dollars. There's been fantastic reporting, incredible investigative reporting from a number of different outlets, but we still don't know who is paying for this. And that is not merit on the left. That is extremely troubling. Friends, thank you very much. I appreciate all of your information and perspectives on this. Okay, so how will colleges achieve diversity now that the Supreme Court says they cannot use race? Well, one California school has become the most diverse in the country by using something called an adversity score. An admissions officer explains next. A California medical school has become the most diverse school in the country by using something called an adversity score that ranks applicants on how disadvantaged they are. With the Supreme Court striking down affirmative action in college admissions last week, other schools are considering this same metric. Joining us now is Dr. Shadi Shikari, the admissions chair at that school, UC Davis School of Medicine. Um, Doctor, thanks so much for being here. I'm really interested in how can you figure out the level of adversity a student has faced? Thank you for having me here, first of all. Um, If you would allow me to share with you our multi-pronged approach to figuring this issue out, uh, at least at our institution, at University of California, Davis, um, for years now we have been thinking about this issue. And uh, the first thing that we've had to do is define what is our mission, what is our goal as a medical school uh, admissions committee. And our mission is to matriculate a class of students year after year who will, when they become physicians, meet the diverse healthcare workforce needs of our community, of our region, and our state of California. And as you know, California is a very diverse state. We have people of a variety of cultures, people speak different languages, and we have folks who um, go across a very wide socioeconomic spectrum. And since 1996, some over 20 plus years ago, we have uh, had a ban on affirmative action. And so we have 
done a, an iterative, iterative process by looking back and sort of tweaking uh, our process little by little to try and come up with the best way that we can meet our mission. And that is by a process of holistic admissions. And the SED score, the socioeconomic disadvantage uh, score. So you're right, so you use score. something called an SED, the socioeconomic disadvantage yes. scale. Yes, and that has, that has also evolved over time. We refer to distance traveled uh, at this time. Uh, this is just a part of what we look at. But let me just show people so that they understand that you have achieved something that other schools have not. So the U.S. medical school students in the country, this is according to the AMA, 10% are black, 12% are Hispanic. In your school, 14% are black, 30% are Hispanic. So your numbers are much higher than nationally the average of that. And so, but let me ask you this. Have you determined that socioeconomic diversity is more important than racial diversity? It is certainly a very important factor to us in our state. And not being able to use any of those personal characteristics, race, gender, et cetera, um, we want to look at our admissions process so that our physicians that we train are then able to go out there and serve our people. For example, the rural communities of California, they have a paucity of physicians. And we need to have programs in place where we can train people who come from those communities who want to be committed to delivering health care and put them back in those communities. What about adversity that is not financial? What about adversity that is based on illness in a family or trauma of some kind? Can you, do you measure that? Do you, are you looking for that kind of adversity? We look at all of it, and that is an excellent point. So the holistic admissions process is one where we look at everything in the application. We look at all of our applicants. We look very closely. We want to know what you went through to get to the place you are when you're applying to medical school. You've achieved so much by getting here and putting in an application. What adversity did you face? Because we're looking for qualities that make a good doctor. How resilient are you? How much perseverance do you have in the face of adversity? Those are all things that we look for. I also thought it was very interesting that you give a low score, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, to the children of doctors. But they are the ones 24 times more likely to become physicians than their peers. Don't you want to encourage kids of doctors to become doctors? Like, why disincentivize them? We don't want anyone to be excluded. We just want people who want to come in and be a great match for our school so that they can go out into the communities and deliver health care to the people of California. And now other schools are looking at you as a model, right? Other schools are visiting yes. to see how they can do this. Yes, yes. And so, we are excited to talk about it. So, I mean, it sounds like this is going to be the wave of the future, the, the figuring out how adversity affects people more than diversity. I hope that it can be a good match for other schools to follow, yes. Uh, Dr. Uh, Shadi Shikari, thank you so much for My taking pleasure. the time to explain it to us. Thank Obviously, we'll talk me. again. All right, meanwhile, there's a manhunt tonight for the violent criminals responsible for shooting 30 people in Baltimore. We've got the latest for you next. Plus, I talked to gun owners from around the country on what reforms they would be willing to live with to stop mass shootings. Baltimore police are searching for at least two suspects in connection with the mass shooting early Sunday morning that killed two young adults 
and injured 28 other people, most of them teenagers. The shooting happened at the annual block party in the city's Brooklyn neighborhood. Investigators say they still do not know the motive. More tonight from CNN's Danny Freeman. Allison, tonight, Baltimore police still on an all-out manhunt looking for potentially multiple shooters responsible for shooting and injuring 28 people and killing two others over the course of the weekend. The mayor today saying unequivocally that the city will find those responsible and bring them to justice and put them behind bars. But I just want to recap exactly how we got to this moment. It really all started on Saturday afternoon into Saturday evening in Baltimore's Brooklyn neighborhood. They had a block party. It's an annual block party called Brooklyn day and it's happened for the past 20 plus years but this party this block party does not always happen on the same day which is why police would later tell us that they did not have as much of a presence at this block party as they normally would have in past years now then early sunday morning the party went into the evening and into the early morning early sunday morning just after midnight then police say multiple gunmen opened fired on a crowd at some point there were hundreds of people in this crowd in this party and of course 28 people were injured an 18 year old aliyah gonzalez and 20-year-old Kailis Fagbemi were also killed. Now, at this point, there have been no arrests, but I want you to take a listen to what the mayor of Baltimore said today, specifically on the topic of gun violence in his city and in this country. This is not just a Baltimore thing. We have to be honest. This is the United States of America. This is our longest-standing public health challenge, and we need to focus on gun violence regardless of where it happens. Now, Allison, at this point, there is a $28,000 reward for any information that could lead authorities to an arrest and charges in this particular case. But I also want to mention this city is also looking ahead to more holiday weekend events, specifically tomorrow on the 4th of July. And the mayor and the city want to reassure folks in the city of Baltimore that they are putting every resource they have to make sure those events that are coming up still are safe. Allison? Well, let's hope they get those shooters. Thank you, Danny. Okay, not a week goes by on this program that we don't report on gun violence. Maybe it's a mass shooting or a school shooting or random deadly violence in a city. As the debate rages about the Second Amendment rights versus gun reform, we wanted to hear from gun owners themselves. So we assembled a group of six passionate gun owners from around the country. And as you'll hear, even they cannot agree on the right balance between freedom and safety. But we begin with the reason they each got their guns in the first place. I first got a gun in 2020, and I bought a gun because there was a huge rise in violence against trans women that was occurring across the country. And the very first um, video that kind of sparked my interest was an attack against a Black trans woman by the name of Ayana Dior. And this attack had occurred in the middle of a gas station one night where she was violently mobbed by 30-plus men. You know, the only thing that would have really, truly uh, defended her from that violent mob that had attacked her was a gun. And so that's when I decided to purchase my own gun. I grew up in Michigan and uh, hunting was, uh, you know, kind of a rite of passage. And since then, I've I've acquired four more guns and a shotgun, another rifle and a couple of handguns. I only bought the handguns after getting involved in the you know, gun violence prevention, gun safety movement, and to get familiar with handguns. I come from um, a community where guns guns were just pretty much for criminals or for police officers or law enforcement. I have never liked guns or, you know, I was afraid of them, I had a fear for them. But once I saw that the rise in crime and the fact that I have to be my own, you know, first responder, 
Um, and then I started educating myself more. You know, I have to be able to protect myself and protect my children and my family. Uh, I was out one night and I came back home and my place had been broken into so bad that the doors had been kicked off the hinges uh, and I could not repair it. I was living in a, a townhouse complex. Um, I called police. Police came and took their report, but maintenance was going to take a while. So I went at that moment and purchased a shotgun. We use our guns for sporting, for hunting. We see the benefit um, that guns bring you know, to this nation, ammo sales, firearm sales, um, fund conservation, fund um, land protection. We see the benefit of hunting more than just, um, you know, it's fun. I grew up in a um, kind of a gun neutral family in the South, uh, a lot of hunters, but uh, not a lot of handguns. Uh, saw real quick after I joined the military, I was stationed in Oklahoma City. I lived off base there and not in the best part of town. So I uh, went to a local gun shop and bought my first handgun. Personal protection was important to me. So show of hands, how many of you support universal background checks? Okay, so three of you support universal background checks. You know, universal background checks, I think, sound great in theory. But in all actuality, as we've seen, it's been very unfairly invoked. It's marginalized communities that it's been targeted against. Who is targeted and not allowed to have a gun because um, the government is targeting them or singling them out? For example, the Black Panther Party, when they first uh, practiced their right to uh, self-defense and carrying arms, uh, the California state legislature introduced further restrictions on the ability to carry arms. But do you feel that things have changed since the 1960s? I don't, unfortunately. I think that the United States still continues to invoke the law in ways that is quite unjust. You just look back in any history of, uh, you know, gun control and the slippery slope from one day, it's a uniform background check. Next day, it's red flag gun laws. Next day, it's gun registry. Next day, it's gun confiscation. The Jim Crow era, the Black Panther example, uh, they just keep that that slow erosion. I hear that talking point a lot where, um, you know, almost verbatim, slippery slope. It starts with background checks, then it leads to a database registry, and then they take your guns. But can you give um, a more modern day example? So to give you a modern day example, you know, I I know there's some states that are doing it. But hold on, just so I understand, uh, Robert, you're saying that there are some states that are doing it. What states are confiscating guns? No, I didn't say any states were confiscating guns. I said there are some states... Uh, pushing for gun registries. I guess I don't fall into that uh, line of thinking of like, if I give an inch, they're going to take a mile because of the constitution. This country has a mental health problem. It doesn't have a gun problem because the guns in my house have never killed anybody. You know, so we, we, we love to blame the gun. We love to blame the law abiding gun owner for lack of support for more gun control. But Robert, we do not have any higher a mental illness rate than any other country in the world. And yet we have the highest... Uh, mass shootings, school shootings, and an incredibly high gun violence rate. So it can't just be mental health in this country. Why don't you think that guns are a factor in our gun violence? My, my guns are not a factor. My, my point being that my rights should not be taken away because a, a mental health gun issue in somebody else's house, in somebody else's community, in, in Chicago, in New York City. How many of you support red flag laws? Okay, the same three who support universal background checks support red flag laws. I believe that red flag laws have this 
this this potential to create these extraneous points of interaction between police and uh, uh, black communities, other minority or marginalized communities, where there's already, you know, this strain uh, and mistrust. I think they can only work if you trust the state and the police and the FBI to do their jobs. And unfortunately, that's not the case. That was a common theme for people who argued against passing Oregon's ERPO law, that it would be abused. And the fact is, I mean, Oregon, we have a little over 4 million people. But in the years that I've been tracking the number of ERPOs filed, um, there's less than 200. When less than 200 ERPOs are filed in a year, it's not being abused. I own a gun store, so... You know, a lot of times when we get, well, not a lot of times, we get customers that come in, we're actually, um, you know, making sure that they're not like under the influence. We're making sure that we're listening out for like statements that could be made as far as like mental health about harming themselves or maybe harming someone else. There's no sort of regulation where you have to ask people. You just get, you just have taken it upon yourself for every gun sale or is it like when your spidey senses are going off? This is is every gun sale. We're paying, we're paying attention. There's plenty of times that someone had came in here and might have said some off-the-wall stuff, and guess what? We had to stop the sale. What was something that raised your suspicions? Oh, I want to buy this gun because I want to kill my wife. Oh. It was just like statements, comments that he was making like under his breath and things like that. So this is why I totally agree with the universal background, um, because had we ran his background, guess what? He had a restraining order out against him. We're going to stop the sale. Uh, I want to talk about the AR-15 because, you know, that is the gun of choice for school shootings and often for most mass shootings. Who has an opinion on whether or not those should be available for sale to the general public? My my problem is if if you outlaw AR-15s or whatever, or you make them super complicated to get, you're going to have to cover every other rifle in the equation also. We already do outlaw some weapons, right? We outlaw automatic rifles you still have your other guns. So where, again, like, where's the line in the sand? Would you be in favor of zero restrictions whatsoever? Yes. Yes. I would love to hear your thoughts on that conversation. You can find me at Allison Camerata on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Okay, next. Imagine being on a roller coaster and seeing this, this huge crack in a support beam. You're going to hear from the dad who saw it right after this. Well, this 4th of July, one North Carolina amusement park has to shut down its major roller coaster attraction. Here's why. Take a look at this giant crack in a steel support beam. This is the Carowinds Park in Charlotte. Even worse, as passengers zoom by, The beam, you can see here, it clearly separates. Look at that. Jeremy Wagner was at the park with his family on Friday when he noticed this and recorded it on his phone. He says his daughter and niece had ridden that roller coaster at least six times that day before he spotted the crack. Earlier tonight on CNN, Wagner says he was taken aback by the lax attitude of park officials when he reported it. I felt there's no urgency in any of the employees. And even after they had me airdrop the video, the guest services person walked off and said, I'll send this to somebody. And they just turned around and walked off, you know, nonchalant. Well, inspectors say they've spent the day examining the crack. 
the amusement park bills this roller coaster as the, quote, tallest and fastest in North America. Okay, next. Sources tell CNN that then-President Trump also called Arizona's governor to pressure him to change the 2020 election results. You've heard this before in Georgia. We have all those new details next. Welcome to a special holiday edition of CNN Tonight. We have new details on former President Trump's efforts to pressure state officials after his defeat in the 2020 election. A source tells CNN that Trump called then-Arizona Governor Doug Ducey to pressure him to find fraud in the state's results that could switch the outcome. Sources tell CNN that then-Vice President Pence also called Ducey several times, but did not put pressure on the governor. CNN national correspondent Kristen Holmes has the latest details. Kristen, what do we know about this phone call? Allison, before we get to Pence's response to this call, I do want to give a little bit of context around these calls, because we did know at the time that former President Donald Trump and then Governor of Arizona Doug Ducey did speak. We just didn't know the context of what exactly they spoke about. Now, I learned over the weekend that Ducey has told people behind closed doors that it was essentially a pressure campaign from the former president to try and find widespread fraud to overturn the results of the 2020 election in the state of Arizona. As you'll remember, Trump was losing by a small margin. It was about 11,000 votes. We also learned that Pence made a series of calls to Governor Ducey at the same time. Now, I'm told by sources that this was not a pressure campaign, that Pence was reaching out to try and see if there was any evidence of widespread fraud and telling Ducey that if there was to report it up the appropriate food chains. Now, Pence was asked about these calls specifically this weekend. Take a listen to what he said. I did check in uh, with uh, not only Governor Ducey, but other governors in states that were going through the legal process of reviewing their election results. But uh, there was no pressure involved. Margaret, I was I was calling to get an update. I passed along that information uh, to the president and uh, it was no more, no less than that. And Pence there is saying that there was no pressure from the former president on him to make those calls. But it is important to note something that has been widely reported, something that we read in these transcripts from Trump's aides at the time in the administration. There was enormous pressure on former Vice President Pence from the former president just overall to find widespread fraud to overturn the 2020 election and eventually not to certify that 2020 election. So that is important context there. The other thing I want to point out about this call is that There's another call that we have reported extensively on, and that's the one that there's a recording of between Trump and the Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, in which he's essentially asking him to find votes to help him overturn the election in the state of Georgia. That call has now been subject to the special counsel's investigation into Trump's handling of January 6th, the 2020 election. And Brad Raffensperger has met with Jack Smith. Now, we have learned that Ducey has not been contacted by Jack Smith and that there is no recording of this call. The other thing I want to say here is that we do have comment from the governor's spokesperson, a former governor's spokesperson, on this call. And he essentially just says that the governor stands by his action to certify the election and considers the issue to be in the rear view mirror. It's time to move on. But again, it is important to note that it's hard to move on because the former president is now running for office again. A huge part of his platform is that 2020 election, saying that the 2020 election was rigged. A lot of his base still believes that. And it is still subject of this special counsel investigation, that 2020 election and Trump's handling of it. So even though former Governor Ducey may be moving on, 
country is not able to do so just yet. Allison. Kristen Holmes, thank you very much for the reporting. Back with me, Vanity Fair correspondent Molly Jong-Fast, Rolling Stone columnist Jay Michelson, Republican strategist Jason Osborne, and constitutional law professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, Gloria Brown Marshall. Um, I don't know, Jay, shouldn't Governor Ducey have mentioned this pressure campaign a little sooner than now? Well, you got to feel for the guy. I mean, he's kind of between a rock and a hard place. You know, he, he would love to move on so that he doesn't have to get any negatives, you know, from all the people who are still election deniers. But I am struck really by some of the unlikely heroes in some of these stories, you know, people who I might really disagree with strongly ideologically. Uh, I would never think I would be, you know, praising, you know, Liz Cheney or Chris Christie or people like that. Mike Pence. But these, and Mike Pence. But these are people who are standing up against someone who they kind of agree with, maybe not on the election again, but but politically they want the Republicans to succeed, and yet they're taking really courageous stands. And for me, rather than the kind of political football of, you know, to who met with whom and whatever, I'm sort of struck really by the public ethics of this moment, that there are people standing up. I wouldn't be too struck, okay? <laughs> I mean, first of all, are we going to take Mike Pence at his word? I mean, there's no... Well, he did. He certified the election. Right, he but he didn't... Right, okay. He did the bare minimum. I'm not the most cynical He, one he the did the bare about. minimum because Dan Quayle told him he had to. Okay, okay. but he got there. I mean, I mean he, he saved democracy. Right, but I mean, I'm just saying, like, the idea that Trump... You know, I mean, there are so many opportunities for Republicans to be brave and do the right thing. And then you have this Governor Ducey saying, this former Governor Ducey saying, this is all in the rear view. Like, no, honey, this is how we got here, is Republicans saying this is all in the rear view. Let him play golf. Remember the Republican official who said, it's not like he's trying to overturn the election, right? Wah, wah, wah. Now he's running on that. Um, Professor, this all rang a bell to me because we all remember the moment that Governor Ducey was, I think, certifying the election in his state and his phone rang. So let's just play this because he had he had his phone specially um, designed to when it was President Trump, it played hail to the chief. So let's listen for this moment. Okay, so Professor, you, th- that was a moment where the President of the United States is calling and he's like, I'll hold that call. And he doesn't answer it and he continues doing the work of the state to certify. Um, are you surprised that the special counsel, Jack Smith, has not spoken to Governor Ducey there? I- I'm surprised because um, the special counsel has spoken to others and there have been um, this, this, this ongoing sense that there's a conspiracy, a national conspiracy, and Arizona would be a part of it. Um, the way the, the former governor acted was like the teenager when the parent calls. And they've called again and again, and I know what this is about. So when I hear former um, Vice President Pence say there was no pressure, if one were to continue to call again and again, asking the same question, that's harassment. That is pressure. And even though they're asking, is there any fraud, they're actually understating the, the, the real question was, um, 
Is there a vote you can find for me? Are there 10,000 votes you can find for me in Arizona? Which is what Donald Trump actually wanted. So yes, I believe that what Ducey did was courageous, given the fact that, as was pointed out, the, the, the base will come for them and, and tear them up to pieces. And Donald Trump then begins to have this harassment of Ducey on social media that then turns this man who had a presidential hopeful dreams to say, I'm just going to leave office altogether. Hmm. Jason, your thoughts? Well, first off, I don't know. I would say downloading a ringtone, especially designing a phone. To have okay, a yes, you're right. Yeah, thank you for thank you for highlighting my technological know-how. But the point is, it was designed to know when it was Donald Trump calling. Right. And I mean, I, look, I think, I think it's a mistake to think that that was one, uh, just one call, right? I think there were probably many calls. And I I don't only really fault President Trump for doing that. I think it was an act of desperation. And, you know, I think I, I would like to think that nobody else would act like that. But he wasn't getting the answers from the people that were making those calls before him. So I'd be curious to see if we could get a list of all the calls that were made into Ducey's office, all the back channels to everybody else in that office and the other states, too. And I think Mike Pence, uh, to Molly's point, I, I have never once heard anybody claim that Mike Pence is a liar. I take him at his word. And I think Mike Pence, being a former governor, has a relationship with all the former governors. And he wanted for himself to say to to empathize with Doug Ducey and what he was doing, just like he called, I'm sure, called Brian Kemp and other Republican governors to get what is the story on the ground and then be able to go back to the president and say there is nothing to be done. But yet Trump did not want to listen to any of that. And he continued to do to the previous person's uh, uh, comment, harass the governors and other elected officials. Okay, let's move on to what CNN's K-File has unearthed. And we all, I think, will remember that in 2016, um, Donald Trump as a candidate was very, very concerned about having a potential president who could be under indictment. He (laughs) talked about it a lot. Here it is. We could very well have a sitting president under felony indictment and ultimately a criminal trial. It would grind government to a halt. If she were to win, it would create an unprecedented constitutional crisis that would cripple the operations of our government. Well, Jay, it's settled. I mean, that's how he felt about Hillary Clinton. Obviously, he must feel that way about his own possible. I mean, is this even a gotcha? The guy himself is a walking constitutional crisis. Like, we've (laughs) lost track of how how much of the Constitution. He said he wants to suspend the Constitution, literally kind of a hallmark of fascism. He said he wants to weaponize the the government to go against his political enemies, literally another hallmark of fascism. So I don't even know if this counts as a gotcha, that he's a hypocrite, that he said one thing before. I mean, the, the threat that this individual poses to the to the you know to our our way of life in our country should really it's July 4th right we should be celebrating and and not being kept awake at night wondering which new article of the constitution Donald Trump is going to try to violate well Molly former president Trump has really worn people down with 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 t- saying two things at once because it, people like Jay and a lot of people do say well there's Trump being Trump but i mean he was quite crystal clear that the country could never have a president, a candidate running for president who was under indictment. That would be a constitutional crisis back then. Imagine that he found out that there was someone who had been indicted twice, 
on state charges and federal charges, and then impeached twice. And that person... He would not have liked that. He would not have liked that. But, you know, with Trump, a lot of the Trump stuff was projection, right? Like that there were, you know, with this kind of Hillary is is dangerous for the reason, you know. I mean, he did everything. And remember, I think part of what's what is sort of the hallmark of him was that he would also just, you know, lie and not tell the truth. And, you know, anything that would sort of serve his case, he would go along with. Uh, Professor, you're our constitutional law expert. What do you think when you hear President Trump say that in 2016? I think about the 25th Amendment, and I raised this many times before. I think he's um, emotionally troubled, and um, there is the possibility, and it's been raised before, that uh, if he were to be in this particular position and and for some reason, God help us all, um, becomes a president again, that we would have to invoke the 25th Amendment because there are too many mental issues here telling us that um, this man should not be in office. But I would have to also say um, there's nothing that states that he can't run. And there's nothing that states that someone who's indicted cannot run for office. And if it bogs down our democracy, and I'm someone who travels internationally, and I've asked people outside of the country, what do you think of what's happening in this country? We've lost so much credibility around the world because of Donald Trump. And many issues, too, but because of Donald Trump and because of our system. But I'll say this one positive thing going back to July 4th. We are still here able to discuss a democracy. And there are nationalist presidents around the world. And the fact that we still have checks and balances in place with a very conservative supermajority Supreme Court, with his appointees there, with so many issues. So I would say we really have to keep this idea of a democracy going and make sure that we understand that we have to be strong and not have him wear us down until we give up and say, you know, I'm tired of hearing about this man. What does he want and when can we give it to him? I appreciate you saying all of that, Professor, because I do think we need to keep in mind our patriotism and what we're proud of and that we get to have these conversations every night on TV. Um, Jason, your thoughts? Well, I'm waiting for the next show where Jay shows up in his lock him up T-shirt just to symbolize exactly what the Trump campaign theme was in 2016. But, you know, look, I, I would hope that he would acknowledge that what he said in the past was wrong. I think what he's going to say is that he meant legitimately indicted because he thinks all of these indictments are not correct. And then I also think that he's of his mind or he's got people around him that are honestly saying, look, once you get elected, you can pardon yourself, even though at least one of the indictments is a state charge, but he's going to try and find a way to convince New York that he can be part, he can pardon himself. Um, I, I, you know, look, there's going to be, we've got, I can't even count how many months we have left in this campaign But at least in the primary season, this will not be the first time that his previous statements come back to bite him and and are in direct contradiction to things that he's campaigning on now. That's true. But he just felt so strongly about it in 2016. It would be an unprecedented constitutional crisis that would cripple the operations of our government. But I take your point. Uh, Thank you all very much. So there's a lot of talk about affirmative action since the Supreme Court did away with it on college campuses. But what about legacy admissions? Are those affirmative action for white students? My panel has thoughts next. A new lawsuit takes aim 
at Harvard's legacy admissions policy. This is hot on the heels of the Supreme Court's decision to dismantle affirmative action. This lawsuit, brought by three black and Latino groups, accuses Harvard of violating the Civil Rights Act of 1964 with their special consideration of legacy students and donor families in admissions. The lawsuit argues that it gives unfair advantage to white students based on their connections. The lawsuit cites a study by the National Bureau of Economic Research that found while 40% of Harvard's applicants are typically white, 70% of legacy applicants are white. The report also found that legacy applicants are six to seven times more likely to gain admission. My panel is about to discuss. Jay, you were a legacy student (laughs) at an Ivy League school. And at the time, it was a point of pride. Did anybody ever say to you, oh, I know how you got in. You don't deserve to be here. No, I was a beneficiary of, you know, the old kind of affirmative action where if you had parents who went to the school, you got in. Unfortunately for me, my parents were not the wealthy donor Mm -hmm. sorts to uh, Columbia University, but my father was a graduate there. My uncle was a graduate there. So it worked out, didn't you? But we didn't, you know, I was really really moved. You know, I think it was Joy and Reed just did a, a clip where she said, you know, she was haunted by the fact that people felt like, she was worried that people feel like she didn't deserve to be there because she was a beneficiary of affirmative action. But I can say from my privileged point of view, we were I was proud of it. In fact, there was a whole sort of elitist fraternity just at Columbia only for the children of legacies. So, it, you know, it, when people say we should all colorblind, it should be a two-way street. It was not a two-way street. Mm-hmm. This was the kind of extra bonus that people were proud of. Uh, and it was the opposite of stigma. It was seen as privilege. Mm-hmm. And, and absolutely, I was a beneficiary of it. When people think that there's some sort of neutral ground, I'm not commenting on the merits of the lawsuit, which I don't think are very significant, but certainly it's just as a matter of thinking that there's somehow everybody has equal access. That's ridiculous. Molly, you, um, I don't know if you tweeted this out, but you uh, called it to our attention. This is JFK's Harvard application essay, okay? So former President Kennedy applied to Harvard with this argument. (laughs) I've always wanted to go there. I have always felt that it is not just another college, but it is a university with something definite to offer. Then, too, I would like to go to the same college as my father. To be a Harvard man is an enviable distinction and one that I sincerely hope I shall attain. And he did. As someone myself who has had a lot of advantages because of my mother and my grandfather's successes, I think it's really important to not let people into college because of who their parents are. And, and you know, I would go one further and say, like, we should be looking at, uh, you know, athletes and musicians and the ways in which the administration gets around just looking at people for being capable. But for sure, there is nothing to recommend this whole legacy application. And the reason it's done is for donations, right? Because they think that they can get more alumni giving if there is a legacy. If there's a family legacy, then families give more. Maybe that's True, yeah, but, um, but it's an advantage to the students. It's an unfair right. advantage. And also, many, many of these schools have, so, I mean, the very elite colleges have millions, billions of dollar endowments, and they're fine. They're going to be fine. Professor, it's so eye-opening to look at it through this lens. I mean, this is the conversation that's happened, you know, uh, I mean, more acutely, I should say, since the Supreme Court ruling last week of just what is affirmative action? What is an unfair advantage? And when you look at it this way, how is legacy not in that, you know, in that category. Well, it is very interesting listening to the conversation of the other panelists and um, hearing how they can so um, 
you know, casually speak of their advantage because now it's been years later when Justice Clarence Thomas is still struggling with what he considers the stigma that he encountered as someone who gained office and uh, gained college admission and other um, privileges based on affirmative action and now regrets that he's had these privileges, but he never gave any of them up. I think one of my major concerns is what is the educational connection to legacy? Because that's what the Supreme Court is saying about affirmative action. That diversity has no educational component. That's what Clarence Thomas wrote in his concurring opinion. So what is the educational benefit to the college and to the other students in the, in the classroom for um, legacy applicants? And once again, it goes back to the money that they bring in and maybe the prestige being a second or third generation. The connections that are being made in these schools is, is priceless. And that's what the parents want. They, the parents want their, their children to be in um, classrooms, to, in, in dormitories, to share space with future leaders. And so the education can be the same great education found somewhere else. But the benefits of being in that environment go well beyond anything that we can find in, in another situation. I, I have to say, um, last fall, I was a fellow in the um, Harvard Kennedy School. And I also was a visiting professor there. And I saw um, the, the, the resources Harvard had to offer its students. I'm not saying that the students there were all brilliant. Some of them were very smart, but they weren't all brilliant. But the aspect now is how much more are they going to get because they're brushing shoulders with other people who are going to be those future leaders. And so, yes, a legacy is something that is an inheritance. I believe that there is um, a racial component to it since for so many generations, people of color weren't allowed to attend the school. So, of course, they didn't have the legacy advantage that, that white um, um, students and then white um, alumni have. But I also believe that um, as long as there are people getting in criminal jeopardy because they're trying to buy their way into these schools, the sense that what the schools offer is beyond an education. It's a step into the direction of being one of the top um, tier people in this country and being in the 1% as yeah. far as um, political, economic, and social achievement goes. I mean, you're so right. It's, the, it's um, the network that it exposes students to that, as you say, is priceless. Um, Jason, uh, we, have a, uh, we have a statement from Harvard. So the senior communications officer at Harvard College, uh, Nicole Rura, says the school will not comment on this specific lawsuit. Quote, as we said, in the weeks and months ahead, the university will determine how to preserve our essential values consistent with the court's new precedent. That's what she said to CNN in an email. But it is interesting, Jason, to think that affirmative action has been stigmatizing to people. And, and it's not just Clarence Thomas. Uh, other people have said that they got, they felt as if people looked at them as, oh, I know how you got here. And legacy was a badge of honor. Right. I, I mean, I, I think I'd be hypocritical if I agreed with the Supreme Court decision, but didn't di agree with the lawsuit that's coming forward here. I think if we're going to have an even playing field as much as possible, because we all realize that it's not always an even playing field, I think they will find ways to get around. Folks that want to go there that have legacy, they're going to find a way to get around it. We, we had the case a few years ago with folks getting into rowing um, or tennis or faking surfing to be able to get into these schools. They will find a way. But I think this case... I would like to see it go all the way. And I'm curious how the 
Supreme Court would rule on it. But I also I read something earlier today, too, that somebody suggested that they look at the beneficiaries of faculty members and their kids getting into these schools as well. And are they getting an inherent advantage because their parents are teaching at those schools? Okay, there's apparently a lot of interesting ways to get into college that have nothing to do with your grades and achievements. So uh, we'll keep exploring all of that. Thank you very much. Just ahead, we have an exclusive interview with Ukraine's president. What he's saying about his country's attempt to kick Russia occupiers out of Crimea, how realistic is that goal? Russia deploying more than 180,000 troops to two major eastern fronts in Ukraine. A spokesperson for the Ukrainian armed forces say that these are air assault and mechanized units and the new Storm Z assault companies that uh, are recruited uh, that count people with criminal records in their recruits. Ukrainian President Zelensky speaking with CNN's Aaron Burnett today about how far Ukraine will go to take back their territory. We cannot imagine Ukraine without Crimea. And while Crimea is under the Russian occupation, it means only one thing. War is not over yet. To be clear, in victory, in peace, is there any scenario where Crimea is not part of Ukraine? It will not be victory then. Let's bring in CNN national security analyst Steve Hall and retired Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling, who is a CNN military analyst. Gentlemen, thanks so much for being here this evening. Steve, um, you heard President Zelensky there. So Ukraine will fight until they get Crimea back. So does that suggest that any hope of some sort of brokered deal, which was spoken of months ago, not lately, is off the table? No, I don't think it's necessarily uh, off the table. I mean, it's obviously a decision uh, that the Ukrainians themselves have to make. Uh, It's a very difficult geopolitical decision, uh, obviously a very difficult wartime decision. Does one decide at the end of the day as a country, a sovereign country, which of of which Crimea is definitely part of Ukraine, still is as far as the international community is concerned. But do you as a country, Ukraine, say, I am going to exchange land so that we can end a war? Um, clearly, Ukraine is not at that at that particular point yet geopolitically, uh, and and that's what I think what you heard you know the president say, what you heard Zelensky say. Will it come to that point? Uh, it, it's too hard to say, and only the Ukrainians can make that decision. I think when you hear Western uh, policymakers, uh, whether it's Americans or others, say it's the Ukrainians' decision, that's not just a political statement. That's actually the truth. They do have to make that decision. They're not there yet, clearly, but we'll see what happens as as the war continues. General, we have heard for the better part of a month now about Ukraine's big counteroffensive that they were going to be planning. And now we hear 180,000 Russian troops moving into this eastern front. So what does that mean for the, the Ukrainian counteroffensive? It's not that they're moving in, Allison. It's uh, the Ukrainian commander suggested that he had estimated there were 150,000 troops in the eastern part of the country. There's military reasons for that. There's tactical operational reasons for that. I believe that what the Russians are doing is trying to shore up the central part because Mr. Putin cannot afford to lose the Donbass. That was the first area he attacked in 2014. There have been some um, gains by the Ukrainian forces in gaining back territory in the east, in the Donbass region. Ukraine also wants to, to liberate 
Kherson and, and Zaporizhia provinces in the southeast. So by the Russians moving more and more forces into the east, Ukraine has to stay there to defend against them. They can't reinforce some of their actions in the southeast. So what we're seeing is what normally plays out on the battlefield, moves, counter moves by enemies and uh, 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 to try and gain ground. And in this case, Ukraine is attempting to uh, truthfully uh, operationalize along a 600 kilometer front where the best places are to attack, where the best places are to gain ground first. And they would like to do it in some ways to the disadvantage of the Russians. The Russians are reinforcing their lines in the east to prevent them from doing that. This is typical combat activity. It was very interesting to hear Aaron talk to President Zelensky about the short-lived coup, the, you know, Wagner uprising. So here is what President Zelensky described. Here's how he described Russia's grip on power after that. We see Putin's reaction. It's weak. Firstly, we see he doesn't control everything. Wagner's moving deep into Russia and taking certain regions shows how easy it is to do. Putin doesn't control the situation in the regions. He doesn't control the security situation. All of us understand that his whole army is in Ukraine. Almost entire army is there. That's why it's so easy for the Wagner troops to march through Russia. So, Steve, is that true, that Putin doesn't control some territories? Well, Allison, let's start with the fact that it's extremely difficult to determine what, what's precisely going on inside the Kremlin. And the reason I say that is because the first question that pops up, and I think this is what Zelensky was trying to get at, was how could this have happened? I think he's saying a lot of things that are correct. I think it is the case that there are so much, there's so much Russian focus and so many Russian troops in Ukraine right now. Uh, to include his internal security services like the FSB, that it, its primary responsibility in the past has been to protect the regime. The FSB's focus has now apparently shift, shifted into Ukraine, which, of course, has indeed, I think Zelensky's right, has made some parts of Russia less secure than they were before. So I, I think he's right. Putin is, is weakened here. There, is, there are a lot of people who are saying, well, let's be careful when we, when we talk about Putin being weak. Nevertheless, there are some facts on the ground, and one of them is that a mutinous group of Russian military guys, the Wagner Group, almost made it, you know, to Moscow, to the gates of Moscow, uh, under 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 Putin's watch. And you know, I think just a couple of weeks ago, many of us would have said, "Well, that's virtually unthinkable. That couldn't happen." So Zelensky's right; he's not as strong inside of Russia as he was before this happened. What do you think, General? Yeah, I think the same thing. Steve is exactly right. And, and remember, Allison, we haven't just seen the Prigozhin uh, troops, Wagner, the, the Wagner group, uh, heading back into Russia toward Rostov-on-Don, north toward Moscow, unimpeded by any Russian security forces. But let's go back about a month. We had uh, the Russian Victory Corps, the so-called mutineers that decided to invade Belgorod and uh, Kursk and Slovyansk. These, these were other forces that weren't stopped by any security details as they went back toward Moscow into Russian oblast. So I, I believe Zelensky is right on target. Uh, the, the Russian army is mostly in Ukraine right now. The very fact you mentioned early on in the program about how uh, there were more airborne and air assault troops in the east. That's an indicator. 
because like Steve said, those those guys are usually the palace guards. Those are the most elite troops. So if he's trying to put them in defensive positions, something they're not real good at, these are people that jump out of airplanes and attack targets. If he's putting them in defensive positions, that means he's hurting. And we've seen all along that even though the defensive battle is going to be very tough for Ukraine, uh, they have succeeded. They have regained territory. And, uh, you know, Russia started this war with 200,000 soldiers going into Ukraine. Now they're saying, well, we've got 150,000 in the Donbass. And Ukraine did very well at the beginning against a much larger force spread out over much larger territory. So I'd, I have high hopes for what the Ukrainians are going to do. It will take time. It will certainly take time. And there will be a lot of casualties. But this is a tough fight. Mm. General Hurtling, Steve Hall, thank you both very much. Sure. Thanks, Allison. OK, back here, think twice before setting off fireworks this 4th of July. They're responsible for at least six wildfires in Washington state this weekend. That story next. Firefighters in Washington state are battling a wildfire that's been burning since early Sunday morning. It covers more than 500 acres. It's the Tunnel 5 fire, and it's forced hundreds of people to flee their neighborhoods. So far, it has destroyed 10 homes. It threatens 250 more. This fire is currently 0% contained, and the cause is still unknown. And it was not the only fire in Washington state this weekend. Fireworks sparked six smaller fires in the Pacific Cascade region. Joining me now is Washington's Commissioner of Public Lands, Hillary Franz. Hillary, thanks so much for being here. How worried are you about the 4th of July celebrations with fireworks tomorrow? Extremely worried. Right now, our landscape is extremely hot. It's extremely dry. Uh, We have winds down in those conditions you can see on the screen right there. And all it takes is literally one spark in these areas. And we have 100,000, it could be a 1,000 acres fire, 100,000 acre fires in very few little days. So what's the balance between, I mean, yeah, like what are you telling people? Because obviously everybody wants to celebrate the 4th of July, but they want to be safe. So what's the balance? I mean, the 4th of July represents truly the best of America, and no one personifies these American values more than our firefighters. If you really think about it, our firefighters are people of service, dedication, and courage. They put their lives online every single day, fighting to protect the lives of strangers they will never mate. Um, They're really the best of the best, our role models, our heroes. And honestly, this is a time where we need to celebrate them and protect them, and that means across Washington state, across our country, we need to take care of them by being one less spark. We're urging people, please do not light fireworks. Go to a fireworks show that is set up by a professional. Watch it, keep yourself safe, keep your neighbors safe, keep our firefighters safe. Those images you just saw of that community, it was just a few years ago where a firework literally sparked a fire that burned tens of thousands of acres. It was just a foolish air. They thought, no big deal. Unfortunately, it truly threatened lives and damaged that entire landscape and that community. And our firefighters were fighting it for days and weeks. So the professional fireworks shows have not caused any fires. Oh, everything that, that the firefighters are battling in terms of fireworks, those were just amateurs. 
That's right. And what's really happening is people are out having fun and we understand that they're out in their communities. They're wanting to celebrate this beautiful holiday weekend, celebrate Americana. We understand that unfortunately right now, and especially in Washington state, we are seeing extremely hot weather and we've had significant period of time with no moisture. And so our landscapes are extremely dry. You mentioned six fires and the reality is all it takes is one spark and we will have 50 fires quickly, and then that leads to reduced resources. So if you are looking at a number of fire, you have five on the landscape, it's taking on this particular fire, we'll have eight to 10 air resources. We'll have thousands of firefighters. We will have engines. Um, all of those fires take enormous amount of resources and they get very, very stretched when we have so many fires happening on the landscape, state by state, community by community. It's incredible, Hillary, how much the weather pattern in Washington state has changed over the past decades. I mean, it used to be known for rain. It used to be known for being, you know, wet so many months per year. And it's really changed now. Um, this tunnel fire. So talk about that. It's scorched, as we reported, more than 500 acres of land. Is it still zero percent contained at this hour? It is, and it is not to any factor than um, of our firefighters and our air resources. We have had over literally eight plus air resources, scoopers, fire bosses, our Hueys, as well as thousands of firefighters on that fire with dozer operators and engines fighting the blazes. Unfortunately, what you have is hot, dry condition. You also have an area that has amazing wind. It's known for its wind surfing and kite surfing. But unfortunately, when you take fire and you take fuel and you add wind, you have an enormously dangerous situation. And you sadly, we have thousands of people whose homes are at risk. We have thousands of people who are at risk. And so we are urging people to take every step. We are on this fire. We have been working it morning until night, starting yesterday when it started. Um, we are working as hard as we can. Um, but unfortunately, it gets very, very difficult with those winds. We're hoping that we'll get some, some breath of fresh air, of reduced wind, and hopefully some moisture. But unfortunately, there is none on the horizon. Well, we know that people appreciate everything that you're doing, and uh, thanks for letting us help you get the message out tonight about what you're hoping for Fourth of July. Uh, Hillary Franz, thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much. Be safe, everyone. You too. Well, parts of the country can expect thunderstorms and other severe weather to impact Fourth of July celebrations tomorrow. Chad Myers is at the national weather map when we come back. Thunderstorms, lightning, and other severe weather could affect your 4th of July celebrations. Meteorologist Chad Myers is here to tell us what to expect. Hi, Chad. Allison, two areas of concern for your 4th of July. The major threat back out to the west here in the yellow and the orange. That's where there could be hail, severe weather, could be lightning and thunder, and also severe gusty winds out there. Across the deep south and up the east coast, this is where I'm more concerned about lightning from the sky to the ground. And that's where people will be outside. So you have to watch this. The storms that we had earlier today have now moved offshore. They really, if not, they're moving very quickly offshore. And by 3 o'clock, they're all gone. But you will notice a few more showers and storms pop up throughout the heat of the day in the northeast. So there will be some thunder and lightning there. Not as much probably as down across the deep south, where storms fired all day on Monday in some spots. They'll go away in the overnight hours, 
but then they'll be back again in the heat of the day with more lightning from cloud to ground with people outside. By Wednesday morning, it's all over, but somewhere around that 7 or 8 o'clock area for tomorrow night, that's when things could get a little bit exciting. Back out here toward the Midwest, where the severe weather or the severest weather will be. Minneapolis back down into Omaha, Lincoln. This is where a line of weather will push through with wind, hail, and possibly severe thunderstorms right around sunset and the like where you might want to be outside watching fireworks. This is going to be a place to watch closely. Now, there could be a shower in D.C. in the heat of the day, but really things calm down certainly by nightfall. The heat is going to be across the deep south where it's going to be muggy, but the temperatures are going to be the warmest out in the southwest where we still have heat advisories. I mean, Vegas, Palm Springs, Phoenix, all above 100 degrees throughout the afternoon. So 90% of the country has a very nice 4th of July. There are a few little spots that will sprinkle around that will certainly get interesting at times. Just make sure you have a way to get warnings either on your phone or however you do it. Just make sure that if you're outside tomorrow, you have a way to know that a thunderstorm is coming. Right. Hail and wind sounds too exciting. Chad, thank you. Okay, CNN's 4th of July special returns with an all-star lineup. Celebrate with spectacular professional fireworks and the awesome musical performances in store. You can watch CNN's 4th in America live July 4th at 7 p.m. Eastern only on CNN. Thanks so much for watching CNN tonight. Our coverage continues now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.